Okay, <clears throat> where to begin? My name is Riley and I'm an ex-Jehovah's Witness. I want to tell you my story of how I became a Jehovah's Witness and how that part of my life ended. So, um, I'm 43 years old. I was almost uh, born a Jehovah's Witness um, when I was two years old. My mum was contacted by Jehovah's Witnesses. Basically, somebody knocked on her door and um, told her, um, you know, the Jehovah's Witness message and asked her if she wanted to study the Bible and she accepted. Uh, she continued studying with Jehovah's Witnesses for the next four years and she got baptised into the religion when I was six years old. So I was pretty much raised as a Jehovah's Witness. Um, many of you may know that Jehovah's Witnesses don't do things like uh, celebrate birthdays or Christmas or Easter and many, many things that uh, are just normal for children to do, Jehovah's Witnesses don't do, which is, which is true. Um, but growing up as a witness, I never ever for one minute felt that I was missing out on anything. Um, I was, I can never ever remember a time being at school when somebody in my class was having a birthday party or if there was a Christmas party at school and feeling envious that they were doing something that I wanted to do but wasn't allowed to take part in. I never ever felt like that. Uh, some witnesses do, I know that for a fact, but me personally, I never felt left, um, that I was missing out. I guess a lot of that was because of my mum. My mum is a fantastic person. Um, she really, really went out of her way to make sure that me and my siblings were happy and that we didn't feel like we were missing out. She really made up for a lot of things, which I'm very grateful to her for. To her for. Um, so I was happy as a Jehovah's Witness. I wasn't necessarily a happy child, but I was happy as a Jehovah's Witness. So when I was 13 years old in uh, 1990, I, uh, as witnesses say, make, made the truth my own. And I decided that this was something that I wanted to do personally, not just because my mum was a witness and she took me along to the meetings with her. I decided that I wanted to be a witness independently by myself. So I got baptised when I was 13. And um, the thing is, my entire life as a witness from childhood onwards, although I was happy in the religion, I never ever felt it. I never ever felt the love for the religion and the way of life that I saw other people around me experience, especially my mum, because my mum was and still is up to this day, a very, very zealous, devout Jehovah's Witness. And I spent my entire life as a witness waiting for that to click one day you know i was just continually continuously hoping that one day something would just click and i would get it i got it on an intellectual level you know um the truth which is uh how jehovah's witnesses refer to the religion internally um the truth made sense to me on an intellectual level and it always it always did more or less 
Um, but because I never felt that love for it, I never ever really progressed in the religion after baptism. Uh, people were always saying to me, you know, you're so intelligent and you understand the scriptures so well and you give such good talks, talks uh, for those, you know, non-witnesses who don't, are not familiar with a lot of the terms. I'll try to explain them as I go along, but um, talks are basically equivalent to sermons. So people would always, always say to me, oh, you give such good talks, you know, your understanding of the scriptures and the way you explain them all, you know, is so, so really, really clever and, you know, um, and I um, I was grateful that they felt that way about, about, you know, me and the way that I spoke and the way that I gave talks and the illustrations I would use. But those compliments never really touched touched my heart because for me, myself, internally, I knew that there was something missing. So I kind of took for granted the, the understanding I had of the Bible and the understanding I have of the scriptures. And I felt that I never, ever measured up to people who had a lesser understanding of the scriptures that I did, but who were in love with the religion. I, I envied them. Whereas I know that a lot of them envied me. So, yeah, I, I mean, as a, as a man in, in the Jehovah's Witnesses religion, you're, you're expected to reach out, is the term, to put yourself forward to eventually having a position of responsibility in the congregation. And I never, ever did that. And I was always having elders. Um, elders are the um, overseers of the congregation. So I was constantly having elders, you know, complimenting me and saying, why aren't you reaching out? Why, why aren't you trying to progress? You know, and it was always because I felt that there was something lacking in me. And that's the reason why. And that was the case for years, literally from the day I was baptized at 13 years old to the day when I was no longer a witness at age, how old was I? I think I had just turned 42. So that's what it was my, my entire life. So um, fast forward uh, from 1990 to 1998, uh, the year I got married. I was 21 years old. Um, I married a, you know, a fellow Jehovah's Witness, uh, somebody that I had known since I was 15. Uh, we weren't close friends at that time, but we were acquaintances. But um, yeah, we, um, you know, our relationship developed and we got married when I was 21 years old. Um, so uh, we had four children together and, you know, we raised them in the, um, in the religion as well. But because I was never reaching out and by this time it became obvious, I mean, when you get into your 20s and you're not appointed to have a position of responsibility in a congregation, people start looking and, you know, people start wondering why. Um, yeah, so because I wasn't appointed and because I was never, you know, striving to be appointed, that did put a strain on um, my marriage. Um, yeah, because I was seen as not, not being really spiritual. 
which I understand, you know, I can't, I can't really deny that I wasn't, I wasn't very spiritual, everything, my involvement in a religion never went past, you know, here, it was, it was all up here, it never went down into there. So things pretty much continued like that up until 2019, when, uh, for many, many different reasons, which I'm not going to go into, um, but yeah, in 2019, um, my marriage broke down and my wife and I separated. So I left the family home and um, for a short time I was I was actually homeless. Um, but then I eventually uh, moved back home with my mum, who is a Jehovah's Witness, still is a Jehovah's Witness. And I was living with my mum from was homeless for January, February. I moved in with my mum in March 2019. And over that period of time from January to uh, April, yeah, so between January and April, um, I, <laughs> how should I say, I got in trouble with, uh, with the religion and I was disfellowshipped in April of 2019. Uh, so for those of you who don't know, disfellowshipped is the witness equivalent of excommunication, which I believe is what they call it in the uh, Catholic Church. So you're basically kicked out of the religion. You've done something wrong according to the rules and principles of the religion and you're deemed as not being sorry or not being sorry enough about what you've done wrong and uh you're basically expelled from from the congregation so that's what happened to me in april 2019. um it wasn't really a surprise to me um you know i did do the thing wrong that i was disfellowshipped for i don't have any grudges against uh the elders who did disfellowship me one of them was actually somebody i considered a, a good friend um but to be honest i don't blame him I don't blame any of them. I do have several bones of contentions with some of the elders. One of the elders who was actually on my judicial committee. So the judicial, judicial committee is sort of like a Jehovah's Witness court system that gets formed when somebody in a congregation has committed a sin. So one of the elders on that committee, I actually did have a problem with for other reasons not related to the sin that I had committed. And uh, there were a couple of other elders in the congregation that I had very, very serious problems with for other reasons, which I won't really go into. Maybe I will in, in a future video, but not for now. But when it comes to my disfellowshipping, you know, of course, I wasn't happy about it. I didn't want to be disfellowships, but I don't blame them for making that decision. So on the night of um, my disfellowshipping, um, it was like the, the world had just fallen out from beneath me. If you're not a witness, there is absolutely no way you can comprehend how insular the religion is. You literally grow up in a bubble. Um, you're not supposed to have friends, excuse me. You're not supposed to have friends who are outside of the faith. You're taught to be friendly with people, 
and you're, you're taught to treat everybody well and be an example and have exemplary conduct and that may attract people to the religion but you're not supposed to have friends the, the best way that I can explain it is like um, that scene from the movie uh, The Matrix where Neo is actually there are a lot of parallels which I won't go into but that scene where Neo is, is, is when he's woken up from the Matrix and then Morpheus is taking him into the training program for the first time to teach him how the Matrix works and teach him how they function within it and their, what their mission is. And he says, look around you, look at all of these people. These are the people we're trying to save. They're lawyers, doctors, school teachers, whatever. But most of them are so invested in the very system that enslaves them that they are just not ready to be woken up for it, from it. And for that reason, any one of them can be your enemy. That is the perfect description of how Jehovah's Witnesses see people who are not Jehovah's Witnesses. You're friendly with them because you're actually trying to save them. When, when Jehovah's Witnesses go knocking on doors, in their eyes, they are actually trying to save people from the impending end of the world in which anyone who's not a Jehovah's Witness will basically die. So they, they're very caring. They care about people. They love people. They actually feel that they are saving people's lives. So for that reason, they do have compassion for people who are not Jehovah's Witnesses. But at the same time, you're, you, you're supposed to have in the back of your mind that these very people whose lives you want to save are against you. And associating with them making friends with them socializing with them could actually harm you it can harm your principles it can break your integrity to the religion and to the organization so as much as you're trying to help them you still have to keep them at arm's length so uh, that's how it is so the witness world is very very insular especially if you're born into it because Usually, if you are born into the Jehovah's Witness religion, everyone you know on a personal basis is a witness. The only time you associate with people who are not witnesses is at school and at work. And even then, you're supposed to keep it to a minimum. So there's no extracurricular activities. There's no going to people's houses who are not witnesses. There's no going out with your workmates. Um, me personally, I did do that occasionally, but um, I kept it to a minimum. You know, every now and again, I would go out with work colleagues for a drink um, or go out to lunch with them because I'm a sociable person. I like to be sociable. And, I, you know, it never, ever sat well with me to think of people who weren't witnesses as being dangerous or bad people. It never, ever sat well with me to think like that, although I accepted that that's the, what the religion taught. And I even taught that to my own kids, you know, which I have a lot of feelings about now, but um, it, it just never, ever sat well with me. So I probably associated with non-witnesses, Jehovah's Witnesses call non-witnesses worldly people. So I associated with worldly people probably a bit more than most witnesses should or, or did. Um, so... Yes, it was the night of my disfellowshipping and my whole world had just been completely taken away. It meant that 
until I demonstrated how sorry I am about what I'd done wrong, which could be anywhere from nine months to years, you know, depending on how how the elders of the congregation view you. Um, it meant that I would have no contact with my family, um, my 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 mum and my four children, as well as friends who I'd grown up with from childhood, everyone in the congregation. It meant that they were now required to shun me and literally not speak to me at all. I did continue to have contact with one of my four children, but that didn't last very long. Um, so as we are now, it's July 2020. I have not, the last time I saw my son was in June of 2019. Uh, my three daughters, I haven't seen them for longer than that. Okay, so immediately after I was disfellowshipped, I, I literally drove to a friend's house, a friend who was not a witness. Uh, we used to work together many years ago. Um, and, you know, we continued to be friends, but we weren't actually in contact until, not regular contact, we weren't in regular contact until recently, until shortly before I was this fellowship. So I went around to see her and the first thing I said was, I'm all alone. That was the very first thing I said. I just said, I'm all alone. And uh, she just gave me a big hug. I sat down, she made me a cup of tea and um, I just told her everything, you know, and she was very, very understanding and non-judgmental, um, very caring and compassionate. And she assured me that I was not alone. Um, I really appreciated everything she said and, um, you know, the effort that she was making to comfort me, but to be honest, and no, you know, fault of hers, it, it wasn't really comforting to me, you know, not really, because being a Jehovah's Witness was literally all I, all I know, and it's, it's not, for, for Jehovah's Witnesses, being a witness is not just a religion, for a lot of people, a religion is not about life or death, or truth, or lies, it's simply just a way of life that they do, because they get a lot of personal benefit from it, with witnesses, it's not like that. It's literally a matter of life or death. So when I was disfellowshipped, I was, for all intents and purposes, given a death sentence. You know, so if I didn't come back to the religion and get reinstated, my fate was sealed. It, it's like being on death row. You know you're going to die. It's just a matter of time. So after I left my friend's house, I uh, went back home to my mum's and I sat her down and I said, I've got something to tell you. And I told her that I would, was disfellowshipped. I told her the reason why. And I think either the first thing or one of the first things she said was, you can't stay here. Which I was expecting and I didn't really... Um, I didn't really begrudge her for feeling that way or for saying that I was expecting it. You know, I've been a witness all my life. I knew the rules, you know, do the crime. You've got to do the time. So I said, okay, um, I'll pack 
up my stuff and I'll leave in the morning. So I was going back to being homeless again. So um, the next day we were talking and, you know, she basically said, she changed her mind and said that I could, I could continue to stay there. So I went to a couple of meetings after being disfellowshipped literally just two meetings um, I was disfellowshipped around about the time of the memorial so the memorial is a celebration that uh, witnesses have once a year usually around about April time or, or it corresponds with, with Easter time although witnesses don't celebrate Easter so um, because it was around about that time and there was a memorial the, there was some delay in announcing to the congregation that I was disfellowshipped so, yeah, when I was disfellowshipped, they said I had seven days to appeal, which I knew I wasn't going to appeal. There was no reason for me to appeal because I don't think that they judged my case incorrectly. Um, so I, to, for me personally, even though I didn't want to be disfellowshipped, I didn't really have grounds for appealing. So, as I said, do the crime, do the time. Um, so after they told me I was going to be disfellowshipped, there was a period of time, like about probably 10 days, between then and it being announced to the congregation that I was no longer one of Jehovah's Witnesses. So I went to a couple of meetings, nobody there knew that I'd been disfellowshipped. I did eventually tell like three people who were good friends of mine. But besides that, nobody knew. Um, but then after it was announced, you know, I, I, I no longer attended. Um, then there was, I was in, communication with one of the elders from the congregation that I was attending before I stopped and um, he was you know trying to encourage me to make efforts to come back and everything and then he asked me to come and see him on a Sunday after the meeting I never went to the meeting but I decided to to go and meet with him so I met went and met with him um, how, how long after was this now I think that was, I was disfellowshipped in April. I met with them in probably mid-May. Or maybe I'm getting my dates completely wrong. I can't remember. But anyway, so almost immediately after I got disfellowshipped, <laughs> I'm laughing. <laughs> Almost immediately after I got disfellowshipped, the loneliness hit in, kicked in. And um, I was just really, really lonely. You know, so, so lonely. Because, um, you know, everyone I'd known, everyone who was a close associate of mine was a witness. I mean, I was quite close with people that I worked with and I, I still am we're not, we've actually gotten closer over the years and goodness me I don't know how I would have gotten through this if it weren't for the help that some of my workmates had given me and the moral support and the encouragement you know and the thing is that's one of the things that started making me doubt that it started making me doubt some of the things I've been taught as a witness because I was taught that the love and the unity and the uh, compassion that existed within the organization did not exist in the world. 
that's what I'd always been taught and I believed it but when I was you know going through all of this the care and compassion that I was shown by you know people who were not witnesses made me really question whether or not that was true you know I had had other doubts about Jehovah's Witness doctrine in the past things but I'd pushed them to the back of my mind you know and you'll find that witnesses are very very good at cognitive dissonance very good at just pushing things that don't make sense to the back of their minds and I was no exception anyway so almost immediately after I was disfellowshipped and a loneliness kicked in I made the huge decision <laughs> I feel so weird saying this, even though it's not weird, it's perfectly normal, but being raised a witness, I feel weird admitting this on camera. I started dating. So um, <laughs> I installed a couple of dating apps and I said, I just want to, you know, I just want some company. I want to enjoy myself a little bit because what I'm going through at the moment is just so horrible, you know. But I was determined, at this point, I was still of the mindset that I was eventually going to get reinstated. I was going to be a good boy and, you know, show the elders that I was repentant for what I'd done, change my life and come back. How I reconciled that within myself with dating women who were not Jehovah's Witnesses was that I just want some company. I, I decided that I was not definitely definitely not interested in hooking up you know having sex with anybody or anything like that not at all I was very very resolute about that and um, actually the friend that I spoke to after I was disfellowship when she when I told her that I was dating and she said to me so what about when the women you're dating what about when they want to have sex what are you going to do and I said I'm just going to tell them that I'm not ready for that you know I just wanted some company, semi, semi, <laughs> semi romantic company. I was, I was open to, but I definitely wasn't looking to have sex with anybody because I still wanted to return to the religion. So after, a, you know, uh, a few weeks of dating and boy, I went in hard. I went in hard. I was really, really, I really made up for lost time. <laughs> I was like a, like a, teenager who had only just discovered that girls exist that's what I was like you know um because before even before I got married when I was a teenager I didn't really date I mean I had one girlfriend before um, my wife and Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in sex before marriage so I never had sex with her I was a virgin when I married my wife I lost my virginity on my wedding night so and that's a whole nother kind of worms. That's a whole nother topic in itself. So, yeah, when I started dating, I really dove in at the deep end, you know, head first. So when I went to meet with um, the elders, I told them that. I told them I was dating. I told them everything. You know, what they're going to do at this point is fellowship me. <laughs> so I told them everything, you know. I told them that, you know, they, they already knew what I was disfellowshipped for and I did do that. But I was also accused of doing a lot of other things that I didn't do. And I told them these other things, I definitely didn't do those. You know, 
And to be honest, I kind of think that that, that played a part in why I was disfellowshipped in the first place, because I kind of got the sense that because I didn't admit to all of these other things that I didn't do, that I was accused of, because I didn't admit to those other things, the elders saw me as not being sorry for the thing that I actually did do, because I didn't admit to all of these other things that I didn't do. But anyway, that's another story. So I, I told the elders everything that I was accused of, everything I did and everything I didn't do. I told them that I was dating, yeah, I told them that I'm dating because I just want some company and I'm lonely. Um, and I said, I'm still planning to come back. But when I come back, I, I, will, I want to be able to confidently say everything I did while I was disfellowshipped and everything I didn't do. And sleeping around and hooking up with women is definitely something that I will be able to say to you. I did not do this while I was disfellowshipped. And I meant it 100%. So, um, they started, you know, trying to dissuade me from doing that and um, encouraging me to, you know, come back as soon as possible. And I said, I do, I do want to come back, but at the same time, I, I do have mixed feelings, you know. I said, I do, I do have mixed feelings about the whole thing too. I said, um, I remember saying, because Jehovah's Witnesses have this hope of living forever on the earth. You know, um, any day now, Armageddon is going to come, which is God's war against wicked mankind. All the bad people, a.k.a. non-witnesses in the world, are going to be destroyed. Only witnesses will be will remain alive on the earth. They're going to turn the earth into a paradise and live forever on it. But the thing is, that's not guaranteed. Witnesses are taught that even some witnesses won't make it. If they're not good enough and you're actually taught that nothing you do can be good enough for you to deserve that if you do make it is because God was kind to you in an undeserved way it's called it they actually call it undeserved kindness so you can't no matter how much you work and how good you are in the religion you can't earn your place in that new world in that paradise and live forever you can't earn it so because it's not guaranteed, I said to the elders, you can't lose something that you've never had. I said, if I die when Armageddon comes and I don't get to live on paradise forever, I haven't really lost anything. Because I don't already have that, it's because it's not guaranteed. So why can't I just be satisfied living a good life here now why can't i just meet somebody get married settle down be happy for the rest of my life or for the rest of my life in this world however however long this world has got left before armageddon comes why can't i just do that and the next thing that the elder said to me and this elder is a dear dear friend of mine when I was a small boy he was he was like my spiritual father he was he really took me under his wing and he was like a father to me and I still have a lot of love for him up to this day he tried to scare me he tried to 
they tried to scare me with sexually transmitted diseases. <laughs> it sounds so ridiculous. But he, he started telling me stories about witnesses who had strayed and had sex with someone just once and then ended up getting a disease. Now, obviously, I know that that can happen. But the way he was presenting it to me, it was like, it's a certainty, you know. I mean, non-witnesses meet, marry, fall in love, marry, or not even marry, but, you know, have sex with their partners all the time, you know. There's always a first time that you have sex with a particular person. What, you know, what... What's the percentage of people getting sexually transmitted diseases doing that? I'm not I'm not naive. I know that STDs are out there and people do get them. And you don't necessarily have to be promiscuous to get one. But is but really is that really what you what you say to somebody who wants to meet one person, fall in love with that one person and marry that one person? Is STDs really a thing in that scenario? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. But um, knowing what I know now, I mean, I, know, I, I do feel that he was genuinely trying to advise me in what he thought was best for me as a person. I know that he cares about me as a person. It's, it's evident in, in our relationship over the years. Um, but I do realize now that it's a very, very prominent part of Jehovah's Witness teaching is, is fear. Making people fear what is on the outside in order to keep them inside. And I, and I can see that now. And But I, I, I don't hold that against him. I just see him as being a victim of that just as much as I was. So anyway, that's what, that's what he said to me. So... After that, um, I continued dating <laughs> and um, I, I got, one thing I learned very quickly is that when it, when it comes to the dating world, which I'd never ever experienced before in my life, especially online dating, you have to have a very, very thick skin. I learned that very, very quickly. And it got to a point where I felt like my skin wasn't thick enough for it. So I decided to give it a break, at least for a while. Um, I was seeing someone um, who I really, really liked. I really liked her. Um, I, w I wasn't in love with her, but I, I really liked her. And when she said that she didn't want to see me anymore, and not just because she didn't want to see me anymore, the reason she gave me as well really, really upset me. So at that you know, hit my confidence a little bit. Yeah, that hit my confidence a little bit. So I decided to give it a rest for a little while. So there I am at home, lying on a sofa, and my phone pings. And um, it's a notification from one of the dating apps that I had on my phone. And... Um, so I looked at the profile. So this dating app, I think it's called Happen. It's spelled H-A-P-M. It's a location-based dating app. So as you're out and about going about your daily business, it 
basically keeps a log of where you've been and who in your vicinity as you've been on your travels also has the app so all of the profiles it shows you are people that you've actually crossed paths with you know that or been clo in close proximity to in in real life so um a notification pings that somebody um swiped on my profile so this is somebody who i'd previously swiped i can't remember whether it's left or right but whichever direction it is to say yes i like this person that's the direction i swiped in on her profile and then when my phone pinged it was to tell me that she'd done the same on mine so um i looked at her profile again and then i sent her a message uh, i can't remember what i said initially but you know we were chatting for a little while and then I asked her if she'd like to meet up to go out for a drink. And she said, yes, she would, but she's actually American. She's uh, in the UK um, working and traveling. And she's only got two more days left in, in London before she has to fly back to America. So I was like, oh, just my luck. So I thought, why not just meet her up for a drink anyway? Nothing's going to come of it, but let me just meet her up for a drink. So I asked her to meet me for a drink the next day, and she said yes. So finished work. Um, I went to Earl's Court Station, which she was she was staying in a hotel nearby there. And uh, Earl's Court Station was on my route home from work. I worked in Hammersmith at the time. Um, so that's how we had crossed paths. So there I was standing at Earl's Court Station. I texted her to tell her that I was, I was, you know, there. So she came down to meet me. And as, as a Jehovah's Witness, you believe in the supernatural. You believe that there are supernatural forces, both for good and evil. I don't believe in... Um, like psychics or premonitions or visions or, or anything like that. But having said that, there have been at least three occasions in my life where I've experienced what I call a phenomena that I can't explain. Um, two of those occasions were when I've thought something in my head without saying it out loud, but somebody who was in my company at the time heard it as if I had said it out loud, when for a fact, for a certainty, I was only thinking it. So it was like somehow my thoughts projected and they heard it out loud as if I'd spoken it when I hadn't. Those, that's, that accounts for two of those three occasions. The other occasion is when um, I was at the Kingdom Hall, which is um, the Jehovah's Witness meeting place. We don't call it church, we call it Kingdom Hall. So I was at the Kingdom Hall and then my friend's wife walked in I took one look at her face and I knew instantly she'd had a miscarriage. It was as if the word miscarriage was like branded on her forehead. I didn't even know that they were trying for a baby, obviously, because people don't usually tell people when they're doing that, usually. Um, but I just took one look at her face and it was, it was as if somebody shouted into my head, miscarriage. And I just knew and it turned out that I was right. I can't explain things like that. I don't, I don't, I can't even begin. But when I was at Earl's Court Station waiting for her and she came down 
and I turned around and saw her for the first time, I had another phenomena that I can't explain. I had an overwhelming feeling that this was a really, really good person. And I don't just mean that she was beautiful, which she is, but it was like time slowed down and everything that was inside her came out into my head. It was as if I was seeing into her soul. And I know I know how corny that sounds. I know how corny that sounds, but I can't think of any other way to explain it. And the feeling was so intense and so overwhelming. My face just lit up, you know, and it was as if she was glowing. <laughs> I know that sounds so stupid, but I could just, she was so good. It was like, I know, I've known, I knew her already. She was so good and so nice. I felt like if I was like surgically cut open while still conscious, while still conscious, and one of my organs was, was taken out while still attached to me and put in her hands, I would be safe. I knew that, that whatever was taken out of me and put into her hands would be safe and no harm would come to me. You know, I felt, I felt safe with her. But anyway, I've gone off on a tangent. So that, that was my first impression of, of meeting her. So after what seemed like an eternity, <laughs> we hugged, I said hello, and then, you know, we went to the pub and had a drink. And we were talking and the whole time we were talking, we just had so much in common. I can't remember the ever, ever meeting someone and having such a immediate and strong connection with them on every single level. You know, it was, it was uncanny. Everything that I asked her if she liked, she liked and I liked and vice versa. So we finished drinking and then we decided just to go for a walk around the block and just, you know, talk, walk and talk. So she, she asks me if I like football and I said, yeah, I do. I love football. She asked me what team I support. I said, I support Liverpool. And then she stopped walking. And then she looked at me and she said, before you even answered, I knew what you were going to say. And I said, how come? She didn't say anything. She just went into her handbag, took out her phone, opened up her Instagram account, and then showed me a picture of herself at Anfield, which is Liverpool's uh, Liverpool Football Club's home ground. And I was just like, this can't be happening. This, this can't be real. <laughs> it can't be. But um, yeah, it was real. And um, it was just, it was just perfect. So the day ended, we said our goodbyes and then I was going home on the train. And then I texted a friend of mine who I work with, who I worked with at the time. She was sort of like my unofficial dating coach. <laughs> I used to tell her all about my, my dating escapades. <laughs> so I told her about it and I was like, that was just like the best first date ever. And I was just bubbling over with joy. And then um, I texted her back the, I won't say her name just in case she's, you know, she doesn't consent for me to say her name on the internet. 
So I texted her back and I said, I had a really, really good time. A really good time. It would be such a shame, you know, if it just ended like this. So I said, would you like to um, spend the day together tomorrow? And she texted me back and she said, I was really hoping that you would ask. <laughs> so that made me feel really good. And when I got off the train, when I got to my home train station, I literally skipped. I'm not even lying. I skipped all the way along the platform <laughs> to the stairs. Um, so the next day, I kind of kind of bumped off work. <laughs> or um, for any Americans watching, uh, bunking off work makes basically bunking is like playing hooky. So I bunked off work. I had a meeting that day as well, but I said I'd attend the meeting remotely. So I took my laptop with me. I said, I'll spend the day with her. When it's time for my meeting, I'll find somewhere to sit down and open up my laptop and join join the meeting. Um, if my old boss is watching this, I'm really, really sorry, but it was worth it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's what we did. And we had the best day. We went to the London Eye, which I've never been to before had a really good time talking and still getting on really, really well. And with each passing moment, I felt like we were getting closer. And then um, we went and spent the day in the park and we were just lying down on the grass, like talking. And I plucked up the courage to tell her that I really liked her. And she said that she liked me too. And then we held hands and then we went to watch a movie. And it was so like cliche, like those those teenage coming of age romance films where I like plucked up the courage to kiss her in a cinema and I did <laughs> and uh yeah that was nice and it was just a really really good day really really nice day and then um you came to the end of the day and that was it you know it took ages for us to say goodbye I don't think either of us wanted to actually say goodbye but we had we had no choice she was flying back to the states the very next day so that was it. So the next day I was at home and I was talking to my cousin who lives in Oregon in the States. And I told her all about my date. And um, she's, I'd, I'd already planned a trip to go and see my cousin the, the next, the following month. So she said to me, when you come out here next month, why don't you ask her to meet you here? And I was like, what really she goes yeah why not i said are you sure is that are you is that okay and she goes yeah of course she goes you know i live alone i've got plenty of room of course you know the two of you can come and stay and i was so grateful to this day i'm eternally grateful to my cousin for for making that suggestion i really really am so um that's what I did. I called her. Um, we video chatted. We actually both um, we both watched Liverpool win the um, the Champions League together via a WhatsApp video call, which was <laughs> which was really really cool. That was actually the first time she saw me cry. <laughs> yeah. So I called her and um, I, I said to her, look. I'm coming to the States next month to stay with my cousin. 
why don't you meet me there? And she was like, is your cousin okay with that? And I said, it was her idea. She didn't say yes straight away. It took her a few days to say yes. You know, by this time, I was already head over heels. You know, but she eventually, she said yes. And I was so happy. And um, we met up there. And it was just so, so perfect. I was so, so in love. And uh, the day that she told me she, she was in love with me too, was just like, I will never, ever forget it. I, I remember everything about it. I remember everything about it. You know? Yeah. Anyway, so um, we just continued to grow closer and closer and closer. Um, after we left Oregon, she came back to London. Oh. I'm missing something so after I came back from Oregon got back to my mum's house because <clears throat> I was still living with my mum until this time this is June 2019 the elders came around to see my mum and basically said to her that if she wants to continue being in good standing in the congregation she needs to ask me to leave um, so that's what she did she said, I can't stay there anymore. So I said, okay, how long have I got to find somewhere else? And she said, three weeks. So I said, okay. And things changed immediately after that. Immediately. All this time that I'd been staying there from March to June, we'd really, you know, been getting along well. I love to cook and my mum really, really likes my cooking. So she enjoyed having me there. She enjoyed having me there anyway, but she enjoyed having me there for that reason too. And I love, I love cooking for people who like my food. It gives me a lot of pleasure to cook for somebody. And that actually helps a lot with my mental health because I used to cook a lot at home with, you know, for the kids and the kids absolutely loved the things that I would cook for them. And uh, so I really, really missed that. So being able to cook for someone else and to see them enjoy it was a real pick me up. Um, yeah, so things changed immediately. You know, she ba she barely acknowledged me in the house. If we if she saw me outside of the house, she wouldn't acknowledge me. She would say good morning and good night, and that that was pretty much it. Um. So she gave me three weeks to leave. I managed to find a place, um, which is where I'm living now. Um, yeah. And then um, shortly after that. Uh, my girlfriend uh, came back to London to, to visit. So she was here for two weeks and we had a really fantastic time. A really, really fantastic time. We went out a lot. We had a lot of fun. And then she went back to the States. And then in September 2019, I lost my job, which was absolutely terrifying absolutely terrifying because I had never ever actually lived alone I went straight from my mum's house as a 21 year old straight into you know a house with my wife you know so I've never done the whole single responsible thing of you know paying bills and renting and all of that it was all new to me excuse me <coughs> excuse me 
So the thought of um, having to find a place to rent, work, you know, paying rent, paying bills, um, all of that was scary in itself. But then losing a job after that, I had enough money to be okay for a couple of months without having a job. So I just said, I'm just going to throw all of my energy into finding another job. And then a, an opportunity came for me to uh, freelance. Uh, the freelance work was, you know, I could choose my own hours. There was no set hours. Uh, the pay was for volume. So if I wanted more money, I just had to do more work. Um, so it was very, very flexible, which was so perfect because, and it was remote as well, which means that I could travel. So when it comes to, you know, being in a long distance relationship is difficult anyway. But when it comes to, you know, being able to see each other, it means that I was no longer limited on having to take time off work. I could take my work with me and do it whenever I wanted. So she'd already had a ticket booked to come and see me at the end of September. If that ticket was not booked, I would have been on the next plane to the States the very next day. <laughs> as soon as I got that freelance work, that's exactly what I would have done. I would have been on the next plane out. But um, she'd already, you know, booked to come and see me. So she came and saw me at the end of September 2019. Uh, she stayed here for a month. And then after that, which was the end of October 2019, we both went back to the States together and we were there for three glorious months. Three glorious months. It's the longest I've ever been in, um, away from my home country. And we traveled all over the United States. Um, I have got a massive family in America. It's ridiculously huge. Uh, my relatives could make up a small town. So uh, we visited so many of my family. She, she met so much of my family and, you know, they just embraced her with open arms and me as well, because a lot of them I was meeting for the very, very first time. I actually met an auntie who I love so much. She's so, so nice. But the thing is, she's not that much older than me. She's my dad's youngest sibling. She was only two years old when my dad left Jamaica and emigrated to the, U the UK. So she doesn't even remember my dad, you know. So she's only a few years older than me, but we got on so well. Her and her husband, they are such nice people. And I'm really, really pleased that, you know, we, we're still in regular contact. Yeah, so I, I really, you know, this this might sound like it has nothing to do with me coming out of the Jehovah's Witness organization, right? I've gone on a long tangent of, you know, being in a new relationship, uh, meeting new family members and so forth. But the reason I'm telling you that is this. I was always taught as a witness that if you ever leave the organization and go into the world, it will chew you up and spit you out. There's no happiness or joy or fulfillment to be found in the world. That's what I was always taught. People in the world are mean, they're selfish, and it's almost as if they're at 
any given moment there is a line of people queuing up to do you harm. So that's why you've got to stay in the organisation. Literally, that's what I was taught. But all the, everything I experienced taught me otherwise. <clears throat> My girlfriend was and still is by far the most loving, caring, empathetic, compassionate, decent and principled person I have met in my entire life. She is head and shoulders above any witness I've ever met. And I say that with 100% conviction. So that was really the start of my waking up. Because although I was physically out of the Jehovah's Witness religion, I was still mentally in it. But the kindness that she showed me made me start to question whether or not everything I taught was true. Simply by the way she acted and the way she treated me. And not just the way she treated me, the way she treated others. You know, it just didn't make sense. It just didn't add up with what I was taught. So that was the start of me actually waking up. And, move, and, and leaving the, the organisation mentally. And the same goes for, you know, I met a lot of her friends as well while we were travelling in the States. And they were really nice people. There wasn't not one single one of her friends that I met that I wouldn't care to keep company with. Not one single one. You know, but as a witness, you, you think that everywhere, this is the thing, and I've recently come to learn that <clears throat> it is a facet of high control groups that they present to the members of the group uh, a dichotomy of us versus them, which is a very, very reductive and simplistic way of viewing the world and of viewing people. There's them and then there's us. Them, us, you know, we're good, they're bad, you know. And I was now coming to realise that. But I was still mentally in organisation. And I had, at that time, I didn't have any current plans to, to go back. But it wasn't, I hadn't completely dismissed the idea. I haven't given, given up on the idea of ever going back. But I had no plan, no immediate plans to do so. Anyway, so <clears throat> travelled around the States for three months. That was between the end of October and the end of January. Came back uh, to the UK end of January, which is when COVID-19 hit. And I, I can't begin to tell you the fear that it instilled in me. If you don't know a, a lot about what Jehovah's Witnesses teach, I, I did mention it earlier, I think, that God's war against wicked people on the earth is coming soon and it's called Armageddon. And some of the signs that Armageddon is near are things like war, famine, disease. 
So when COVID-19 hits, I'm having nightmares literally every single night. Every single night, I'm having nightmares about dying at Armageddon. As I said, when you're a disfellowshipped Jehovah's Witness, it's basically like being on death row. You know you are going to die. You just don't know when. So I'm thinking to myself, this is my time, isn't it? It's coming. But I sat down and I thought to myself, okay, Armageddon's coming. This is the start of the end of days. I am going to die. Would I change anything if it meant that I could have a chance of surviving? And I thought about that for a very long time. And then I said to myself, you know what? No, I wouldn't. And then I thought to myself, if at the very end, God himself came down to me and said, here is life on this side and living forever in a paradise. And here is eternal death at Armageddon. This is what you've got at the moment. Death. At Armageddon. But I'm giving you a one final chance to have this. All you've got to do is break up with your girlfriend. Because the two of you are in a romantic relationship. You're obviously sleeping with each other. Which is against the rules. It's a sin. I can't allow you in here if you're still doing that. But if you give her up right now, you can come in. She'll die because she's not one of Jehovah's Witnesses. But you've got a chance. All you've got to do is give her up. I said to myself, if God came down and gave me that choice... I would reject it. I'd say no thanks. I'd rather die with her. And it was in that moment that I decided that I would never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, go back to the religion. Ever. Because the love, kindness, joy, fulfillment that I'd experienced since being with her the kind of love joy and fulfillment that I've never ever had in my life previously but I had always wanted I owe to her and I owe to not being in that religion so I'd rather take that even if it is only for a short period of time and then I die But even though I had made that decision, I was still a believer. I still believed that for the most part, I mean, I was still, I was starting to doubt a lot of things, but for the most part, I still believed that the Jehovah's Witness religion was the one true religion and the majority of what I was taught was true. <clears throat> so I was still on death row in my head, but I was no longer fearful of it. 
So I stopped having the nightmares and I just started living for the moment and enjoying life as it is. And then a lockdown came. And I've got to be honest, it was one of the best times of my life. <laughs> being locked being locked in a room <laughs> with the person you love day in, day out. You know, it was it was great. I don't I don't mean to be insensitive to all the people who, you know, died and got sick. Obviously, you know, that is a huge, huge tragedy. And I don't mean to undermine the suffering that that the disease itself caused. But the lockdown for me was was that was my paradise. The lockdown was my paradise. You know? <clears throat> yeah. So she actually was stranded here for a while because she couldn't get a flight back. Yeah. But, you know, she eventually did. And it's been a month. No, sorry. It's been two months since she left now and went back to the States. And, you know, we're still very much close. You know, we, we're, we're literally on the phone with each other all the time. Thank God for WhatsApp. Oh, thank God. <laughs> I'm grateful for WhatsApp. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. So, about almost just under four weeks ago, I'm uh, actually, no, I've got to go back. I've got to go back to two months ago, shortly after my, my girlfriend left to go back to the States. I'm on the bus. I think it was actually the day that she went back. I was on my way home from the airport, scrolling through Facebook, and uh, Facebook showed me a memory of a photo that I'd that I'd shared. And uh, there were lots of comments on it, so I just went back and started looking at the comments. And then I came across one of my friends, you know, who's still a Jehovah's well, to, as far as I knew, was still a Jehovah's Witness. And I looked at the comment that she said, and you know, it was funny. And then. Uh, I looked at her picture and I thought, what's that? It was small, so I couldn't see it properly, but it wasn't her face. So I tapped on her profile to see what the picture said. And we were, we were no longer Facebook friends. I tapped on her profile and the picture was of a t-shirt <clears throat> with a quote on it. And it said, apostate, someone who no longer wants to be controlled and wants to think for themselves or words to that effect. And immediately I felt a chill go down, go through my spine. So for those of you who don't know, um, an apostate, according to the dictionary, is somebody who leaves their religion or their political organization. Just someone who leaves. But in the Jehovah's Witness world, an apostate is like the devil in human form. There isn't a rational fear of anyone labelled an apostate. So to Jehovah's Witnesses, an apostate is someone who used to be a witness. They've now left and they are so bitter and evil and consumed with rage and hatred that they are now actively trying to pull people away from the religion after them. As a witness, such an irrational fear is instilled in within you about apostates you're not supposed to speak to them you're not supposed to listen to them you're not supposed to go to their websites um literally they're, they're like 
only one, one level below demons in the evil hierarchy. So you, you've got the devil, Satan himself, demons, and then apostates. You know, they're at, at best, they are mentally ill. At worst, they are pure evil. Okay. Um, I remember being, as a kid, every now and again, you'd see one or two apostates at, at our assemblies when we have like the big conventions once a year. You'd see them at the entrance handing out leaflets. And I, I was literally taught once that I shouldn't even look at them. When I see them, I should just like go like that. And if they try to talk to me, I should physically cover my ears just in case they say something that makes me start having doubts about the organization. And then the doubts would grow and fester and then I'd leave and then I would die at Armageddon. So when I saw on my friend's profile that apostate thing, it, it, it frightens me. It genuinely frightens me. Um, so I quickly clicked off it, but that stayed in my head. And every now and again, I would, I would remember it and I'll, I'll be like, why, why is she an apostate now? And not just an apostate, but just like proudly saying that she's an apostate. You know, because to me, apostate was a dirty word. It's not something to boast about or, or to, you know, it's not a mantle that somebody wears proudly. So um, I was wondering what it was all about. Two months later, um, I'm, you know, Marsha's, oh, I said her name. I'm so sorry, babe. <laughs> I said your name, but I really, really hope you don't mind. And I'm not going to edit this video again. <laughs> okay, so, so Marsha's back home in the States. And... Um, The doubts that I've been having about the organization and the things that I've been taught are just growing and growing and growing all the time. Just growing all the time. But I'm far beyond, you know, I'm so far beyond now what a model Jehovah's Witness is, you know. But this to me felt like the final frontier is like the one line now that that. The only line I've got left to cross and the and the, the one line that I really didn't feel comfortable crossing. But I had so many doubts about the organization. I was just, you know, curiosity got the better of me. And um, I decided to, to go and look at her profile again. And then I saw some, you know, posts that she'd made about Jehovah's Witnesses that were very, very derogatory. And I just wanted to know what had happened. Why did she feel so, you know, angry towards the organization that she was once a part of? And I said to myself, maybe I might be. I'm, I'd always known that they were, excuse me, that they were apostate videos on YouTube. So I said, I'm going to find one and watch it to see what this is all about. But I didn't even know what to search. And I, I was I was actually scared of typing in the word apostate into YouTube. I was scared of actually doing that. <coughs> Excuse me. And then I remembered that years before, I'd actually accidentally stumbled across an apostate video on YouTube. It was made by a couple who are quite well known in the ex-Jehovah's Witness community called uh, Mark and Cora Latham. 
I didn't remember their names when I, when this came back to my mind. I didn't remember their names. But I just remembered that some of their videos would have JW.org in the title, um, which is the Jehovah's Witness website. So I typed into YouTube JW.org to see what would come up. And so funnily enough, funnily enough, <laughs> sorry, getting tongue-tied. None of their videos came up, but another video came up, which was by a YouTuber called Apostate Chick. And then I thought to myself again, why are these people boasting about being apostates? It's a bad thing. Why are they proudly calling themselves that? You know, it's derogatory. So she had one video about birthdays and why it doesn't make sense for Jehovah's Witnesses to be against birthdays. So I thought to myself, let me watch that one because I'd actually recently celebrated the first birthday in my life since I was six years old. You know, when I turned 43, that was the first birthday I celebrated since being six. It was a fantastic day, by the way. So um, I watched that video and what she said made perfect sense. The reason she gave why it doesn't make sense for Jehovah's Witnesses to prohibit birthdays made perfect sense and I couldn't flaw I couldn't fault her reasoning. This is me being a born in Jehovah's second generation Jehovah's Witness who was a true believer most of my life. One video and what she said made sense. So I just started watching more and more and more and I binged watched so many XJW videos, so many quote unquote apostate videos. And by the time I was done, I was 100% convinced that Jehovah's Witnesses are not the true religion, if there even is such a thing. You know, there are a lot of doctrines in the Jehovah's Witness organization, and I, I don't think it's reasonable to say that they're all false. It would take a long time for me to unpick them all. And to say which ones I still believe in and which ones I no longer believe in. So I took a very macro level view of the situation. And I asked myself the question. Is the Jehovah's Witness organization the one true organization on the earth that God is using to spread his message to the world? As the witnesses claim they are. And after all the videos I'd watched and all the research I'd done, the only answer I had was no. So that made me feel okay about being undecided regarding all the micro level doctrines. It made me okay with that. And at first, um, I felt a huge sense of relief. Um, I thought to myself, now I don't have to feel guilty that I celebrated last Christmas. Now I don't have to feel guilty that um, I celebrated my birthday. I don't have to feel guilty about sleeping with my girlfriend, which I've never ever felt guilty about anyway. <laughs> that was the one thing, the one quote unquote sin that I committed since not being a witness that I didn't feel guilty about in any way, shape or form. Um, but I did feel 
guilty about celebrating my birthday and celebrating Christmas. But I just meant all of these things that I was brought up believing were sins I no longer had to feel guilty about. And I no longer had to feel fear about death, you know, dying at Armageddon. So I felt a huge sense of relief, but it didn't last for very long. The next couple of days, I pretty much did nothing but cry. Imagine that. Imagine being on death row and then being told that your sentence was commuted and being upset about it. Because you are so indoctrinated that that is what should happen. That when you're told that you no longer have to die, you're not going to be executed, you're upset. But that's what I felt. That is what I felt. I pretty much cried for the next two days. You know, I felt a huge amount of grief. Like something had been taken away from me. I also felt deceived and betrayed. <clears throat> and I don't blame Jehovah's Witnesses as individuals for this. You know, a lot of people say that Jehovah's Witness religion is a cult. I can't deny that there are a lot of cult-like practices in the religion, but I would never ever use the word cult to describe Jehovah's Witnesses because I have too much respect for too many people who are still in it. And the word cult has such negative connotations that you will never hear me, um, you will never hear me refer to the organization or the religion in that way. But it is still a high control group. Without a doubt. It is a high control group. But my problem isn't with the members. It's with the leadership. You know. So I felt betrayed and deceived. The one thing. I mean it's an inside joke. Among Jehovah's Witnesses. One thing that you'll. That all Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, pretty much agree on. Is disdain for the Catholic Church. Witnesses, both on an individual basis and on an organisational level from the top, are always drawing comparisons to the Catholic Church and basically saying how much better we are than them. Always. It's always been that way. I was even guilty of it. But I found out so many things that just made me realise Witnesses are no better than the Catholics. No better. There is no right that witnesses have to brag. Or to talk down to or to think little of the Catholic Church. There's no better. You know, I'll touch on some of those things maybe in another, in another video. Yeah. So that's, that's how I woke up. That's how I mentally left the organization you know that's how i mentally left the jehovah's witness organization and that process is still ongoing you know i'm still learning new things all the time i've learned more about the organization i was a part of for the majority of my life than i ever ever knew while i was in it so much more 
And because witnesses are so insular, you know, there are things that I know now that I am 100% certain that the majority of witnesses have never even heard of. Because you're highly discouraged from researching the organisation from sources that are outside of the organisation. You're literally not allowed to. You can be disfellowshipped or disassociated just for asking questions about why we believe certain things we believe. It's a thing. You know, you could be labelled an apostate and kicked out because you don't understand some of the doctrines and you go and ask questions because you're seeking clarification because you want it to make sense. And you can be labelled an apostate and kicked out for that. Any research you want to do on the organisation, you can only do from all the organisation's own sources. That's a rule. You know, it's like, imagine this is an analogy I've heard from many other XGWs, but it makes perfect sense. <clears throat> so I don't claim credit for it myself. But it's like you're going to buy a car from a car salesman and you say to him, okay your cars look good i'm interested in that particular one but i want to go and read some reviews first i want to go and do some research and they say to you no no no, don't worry i've done all of that for you and then they hand you a brochure that they wrote themselves it said any research you want to do about us and our sales practices and our customer service and all of that you can do it from this you can do it from this brochure that i wrote How does that make sense? It doesn't. And witnesses are so 100% convinced that they have the truth. I know because I was convinced too. So 100% convinced that they have the truth. If it really is the truth, why should it be afraid to stand up to scrutiny? If you were on trial, for something, would you be afraid to take the witness stand and speak your truth? Just in case somebody picks holes in what you're saying. You'd be nervous about going to court and giving evidence, but that's just nerves about the situation. But you wouldn't hide your truth because you don't want somebody else to pick holes in it. The truth should be able to stand on its own. You know, it's like when you're in school, I don't, you know, when in the UK, when you're in school and you're in maths class, the teacher tells you to always show you're working out when you're, when you answer a maths problem and um, you work out the answer, don't just write down the answer on its own, show how you worked it out. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, show how you worked it out. Why would you be afraid of showing how you worked it out if you're 100% convinced that you have the right answer? The truth should be able to stand up to criticism. You know, but Jehovah's Witnesses, through no fault of their own, don't see it that way. They're actively discouraged from doing independent thinking. The term independent thinking is actually a bad thing. In the religion you're taught that independent thinking is bad <clears throat> there's literature that actually says that 
it says independent thinking is what caused Eve back in the beginning to listen to the snake when he said that it was okay for her to eat the eat the fruit. And that's how the world got all messed up in the first place. That's how mankind fell from grace, you know, in the whole first place. Because Eve displayed independent thinking instead of just blindly obeying. So witnesses are just taught to blindly obey and not to think independently. You know. But at the same time, witnesses are taught to develop thinking ability and reasoning skills. And, and things like that, but only within the confines of the source material that's that that's provided to them, not outside of that. You know. So if you've ever spoken to a Jehovah's Witness, you'll find that they are very, for the most part, logical and reasonable people. But their logic is still flawed because it's based on a very, very limited amount of information. You know, like, I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, a witness friend of mine uh, used to be a nanny. And uh, she was pregnant. She was looking after these two kids. And it, she was like in her third trimester. So she wasn't going to be working for much longer. So she, her belly was big. So she's on the bus with these two kids. And then one of them says to her, why is your belly so big? So she says, because I've got a baby in my belly. And then he goes, oh. When I eat a lot of ice cream, my belly gets big because it's full of ice cream. Did you eat a baby? <laughs> and when she told me this, I burst out laughing. Burst out laughing. Of course, it's ridiculous. She didn't eat a baby. But based on the knowledge and understanding that a child of that age has, that was a perfectly logical and reasonable conclusion to come to. And that's exactly the situation that Jehovah's Witnesses are in. They make very reasonable and logical arguments, but that's only because their, their logic and their reasoning is based on information that is inherently flawed. So within the realms of that flawed information, what they say makes sense. But they don't have any outs any information outside of that that isn't flawed in order to have a very well-rounded and balanced view of things. You know. And of course, when you're in it, you don't realize that. You don't. It's only when you're outside of it you realize. So I now realize that. I'm glad I do. I'm glad I do. So <clears throat> this video has gone on far longer than I originally intended. That is my story. That is my my XJW testimony. So I really, really want to help people who are in a similar situation to myself, people who have either left the organization or been kicked out of the organization and who are in complete and utter despair because they think that the future holds nothing good for them. I want to be able to help those people and tell them, yes, it does, or yes, it can. And I am living proof of that. And so many other people are as well. 
So that's why I'm starting this channel. And I've got so much more to tell you. Um, this video is, boy, an hour and a half now. Wow. Um, but this is just the tip of the iceberg. It really, really is. Uh, I'm not looking to debunk Jehovah's Witnesses doctrines one by one or undermine anyone's faith. You know, that's not what I want my channel to be about. I just want to be able to provide ex-witnesses with hope so that they don't have to go through the mental turmoil that I went through and a lot of other people went through. I mean, there are people who were in my situation for years, physically out of the organization for years, but mentally still in, thinking that any minute now I'm going to die. For me, it, it was only about a year or so, you know, but I, honestly, I, I really don't know how people do it. You know, there are a lot of ex-Jehovah's Witnesses who literally commit suicide, you know, and my heart just goes out to them. And if it weren't for videos like this that I watched on YouTube, I probably would still be mentally in. You know, so this is me trying to pay it forward. Thanks very much for watching and I'll see you in the next one.